Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. This month, we're joined by Tim Newfield, Assistant Professor of History at Georgetown University. Professor Newfield is an environmental historian and historical epidemiologist with a particular interest in pre-modern infectious disease and climate change. He is a proponent of collaborative interdisciplinary history and is working on several team articles, as well as a monograph on disease and climate in the Carolingian era. Professor Newfield, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So tell us, uh, how did you get interested in the history of disease? And when and why did you start getting into the history of climate change? I've been interested in the history of health and disease for a long time. I wouldn't really say I'm a medical historian at all. I would say I'm an, an environmental historian with an interest in the ecology and epidemiology of the past. My mother is an RN. And as a kid, I would always leaf through her textbooks that were kept on our shelf when bored or when I should have been doing something else, maybe homework, for instance. But uh, so that got me interested pretty early on. I can't really pinpoint when I became interested in climate change. Um, but as an environmental historian, a lot of people talk about climate. And um, while I started to write undergraduate papers on plague uh, and malaria, uh, circa, I don't know, 2004-ish um, for Richard Hoffman. Richard Hoffman, our mutual mentor, it should be said, at, uh, at York University. Yes, definitely. Um, but I increasingly became interested in climate in my graduate education because climate was one of the things that we could say more about or learn more about at that time uh, from the natural sciences. And... At Georgetown, you're appointed in the departments of history and biology, um, which makes more sense after your your story about your mom. That's really cool. Um, what is it like to hold that kind of appointment? And do you think this is a model for how hiring can or should be done at other universities? I love my cross appointment. Um, it's one of the reasons why I uh, like Georgetown so much. It's uh, Georgetown's treated me really well, and I love that they're interdisciplinary. They really they don't just talk interdisciplinarity; they actually pursue it. I believe I was part of a cluster of interdisciplinary hires, and there were five weirdos, if you will, that were hired across different <laughs> departments. Um, someone is in psychology and math, I believe. Um, but I just think it's it's such a fantastic approach. The students definitely. Uh, love it. I have a lot of biology students in my classes, and I love it too. And I gained so much by being able to hang out and talk with my colleagues in biology. And as you know, Georgetown has a number of um, stars in the field of disease ecology. And so, do you think this is, a, um, I guess, a model, a template that that might work for other universities, or is this something that really kind of harnesses the strengths of Georgetown specifically? I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Um, I would like to see this pursued in many different institutions uh, and not just Georgetown, of course, because I do think that this lends itself to a new sort of history. It really pushes the science of the human past 
um, which has been pursued really only at a few institutions around the world. Um, it, it really encourages cross-discipline collaboration in true interdisciplinary work. But, so yes, I do think that this is something that should be occurring uh, more often, certainly. And not all environmental historians or not all medical historians would have interest in this. Of course, uh, there's uh, a lot of environmental historians are uh, more cultural environmental historians. A lot of disease historians are more cultural disease historians. But for those scholars who do work and uh, are conversant uh, in a number of fields, um, I can't see how this model is not worth copying. Can we parse some definitions? Because we've talked about um, already historians of medicine versus historians of disease. Um, and then there's, of course, historical epidemiology. Um, could you kind of explain those briefly and then explain um, what historical epidemiology is? I didn't know that I was an historical epidemiologist until I was told <laughs> that I was one day at lunch uh, around 2014. Um, and a historical epidemiologist, to my mind, is someone that studies the history of disease with an interest in communicating the results to the present, to relating um, historical disease experiences to the present. They are interested not only in the social economic impacts of disease, for instance, but in changing epidemiological patterns of various microorganisms that cause disease. They're interested in interventions and the evolutions of those interventions over time. And I would say they're more often interested in being able to draw some sort of concrete or semi-concrete, at least concrete lessons from the past. Um, not all historians are comfortable drawing lessons, but I do think that as practicing historical epidemiologists are more likely to write for the Lancet or something like that in an effort to communicate how the past can be kind of leveraged for the present. The vast majority of historians of disease are and have been for decades more interested in the social and economic impacts of disease in the past. I was always, when I was trying to get my feet under me as an undergraduate even, I recall being a little bit shocked that, for instance, in terms of the first outbreak of disease that I spent a lot of time on, uh, a cattle plague in the early 14th century, that a lot of scholars had talked about this cattle plague, but no one had thought to map it or to really establish a diagnosis or to even begin to understand why they were saying it was the pathogen that they were saying it was. So the approach was just completely different. It was society and economy first and everything else second, if at all. So I came from it from a different perspective. And I think that is because I was kind of raised as an environmental historian. So I kind of put the environment uh, if not first, it was definitely in the foreground. In graduate school, I was encouraged by my supervisor, Faith Wallace, to continue that sort of approach. Um, I could have studied the history of health and medicine there, but uh, I really did pursue a history of disease and the environment, um, and she encouraged that. Historians of medicine generally don't study the history of disease. It's certainly a branch of the history of medicine, but I just came at it from a different perspective. Um, and that was a perspective that was encouraged by uh, my doctoral supervisor, Faith Wallace, as well. So actually, this, this question flows out of what you were just saying, because um, you were, I think, the first to argue that rinderpest 
devastated cattle populations during Europe's Great Famine, or, or maybe right after Europe's Great Famine uh, in the early 14th century. And, and it's interested me for a while, actually, how you made that determination, how you went about that research. So uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that paper and just the, you know, the mechanics of, of being a historical epidemiologist doing what you do. Um, at uh, York University, I started to study the 14th century in some detail and became a little bit fixated on the great European famine variously dated from 1315 to 1317, or some would go from 1314 to 1322, depending on their geographical area of expertise. Um, and there are many aspects of that famine that I felt that hadn't been addressed. Some still have not been addressed uh, all these years later or a decade later. No, wait, what am I saying? A decade and a half later. And one of those aspects was uh, the, the widespread mortality of non-humans. And I thought that was fascinating. I was already a vegetarian at the time and thinking of animals. Um, and so I asked uh, if I could pursue uh, a detailed study of the cattle plague of that corresponded in time and space to the Great European Famine for my master's thesis, and I was given the AOK, -okay, and so I did that. And I spent about six months doing nothing else but researching that cattle mortality. And, and certainly, going back to what I had said before, um, the cattle mortality wasn't new in the scholarship, and I found that you know there were narratives built upon it, but there were no foundations, and I thought that was striking. And maybe it was because I was coming at this not from the perspective of an economic historian or a social historian, um, but as an environmental historian. I wanted to understand where the outbreak began as best as possible. I wanted to understand the geography of the outbreak, attempt to understand um, the epidemiology and the symptoms or the clinical expression of the outbreak in order to test the retrospective diagnoses that had been advanced. And there wasn't only one at that point. Some people had floated the idea that it could have been foot and mouth disease virus, which had broken out in 2001 in the, uh, the UK and attracted a lot of attention through the widespread culling of animals there. And then some had also um, suggested that it may have been anthrax. But as soon as you, you know, inform yourself of the ecology and behavior of those pathogens then start to question how these conclusions are being made. So yeah, I really wanted to lay some foundations to test the narratives that were already in place in order and for to allow other scholars to build on those narratives. Because I wasn't, I'm not gonna pretend that I'm also an economic historian, so I wasn't going to get deep into the manorial accounts, for instance, that are available for the UK at this time. Um, thankfully, a uh, colleague, uh, Philip Slavin was able to do that and produce an amazing study that came out in 2012. Um, Bruce Campbell as well uh, did some excellent work on that cattle plague. But yeah, I just really wanted to set uh, some foundations because they weren't there. And I thought that was striking. But now as I've moved on with my career and I've moved back in time to the early Middle Ages and late antiquity, I've also found that there are a lot has been said about the disease experiences in the Mediterranean region in the pre-modern past, um, but not all of it is really all that critical. And a lot of it is based, whether scholars are always aware of it or not, on very old ideas about pathogenic landscapes and disease spread and disease emergence. You know, there are ideas in the history of smallpox, which we can easily trace back to the 1600s that are being perpetuated in, uh, in recent years. Um, 
without much criticism or even awareness of, of necessarily of how old those narratives are. So um, I become a little bit fixated on that. Whether it's worth it or not, I'm not sure yet. This was as a master's student, you were starting to, to do this, this work. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. I was doing some just terrible work on the CIA and the Mujahideen as a, as a master's student. So you were, you were using your time a lot more wisely than me. <laughs> it was uh, certainly, I was very fortunate that I, um, I went to the university that I went to because my high school teacher, high school history teacher, Neil Orford, went to that university and I wanted to be a high school history teacher. Um, I always had an interest in disease, but I had no idea that someone could study the, the history of disease professionally. I got to come back to this. So you, so you wanted to be a high school teacher. I, I, hadn't, I didn't know that about you. What made you change your mind? Um, I started volunteering in a high school. That's what changed my mind. <laughs> um, uh, to become a high school teacher, at least in Ontario, you need to, I'm sure it's the same in many places in North America, you need to volunteer a lot and develop quite a CV quite a uh, experienced practicum, if you will. Um, and that it turned out it just wasn't for me whatsoever. And at the same time, I also uh, met Richard Hoffman at uh, York University and just realized, you know, that history was something that people could pursue professionally as a career. And that environmental history was a thing and that disease history was a thing. So by my second year of my undergraduate, I was already working on, uh, specifically plague and malaria in the Middle Ages, and I was taking Latin courses at the same time. Um, so I really, by just sheer chance, walked into an institution where I could do things that really appealed to me, and everything just kind of fell into place. And it was convenient that the CMS, the Center for Medieval Studies, was just kind of down the street, and I could go there for my master's and continue to work with um, Hoffman for uh, my MA thesis. And then I also became aware of a medical historian in Montreal, and I could go there and continue with my research and move back in time, which is something that I really want to do. And Faith does work on the early Middle Ages, and I was increasingly interested in the early Middle Ages. One of the reasons, I suppose, why I became interested in climate is because I was so interested in food shortages and the debate on the causation of food shortages. I, you know, read Cormac O'Grada and Amarda Sen and Stephen. Devereux on food shortages uh, in the early 2000s. And scholars of food shortage became more interested, I would say, or increasingly interested in, in using the, the data coming forth from paleoclimatology in order to argue that food shortages were not driven by endogenous forces, but predominantly from it by exogenous forces, dramatic and sudden changes in climate and extreme weather events. And so this kind of drew me into the um, history of climate, uh, I became, I guess, interested in that via my interest in food shortage. So undergrad at York University, realized didn't want to be a high school teacher, decided you wanted to do a history of disease already at that point, met Richard Hoffman, then went to McGill for your PhD and your master's too, right? At, at McGill. Uh, no, my master's is at the University of Toronto. Okay. Wow. Cool. So in the spirit of historical epidemiology, um, let's turn to the present um, and uh, the, the current pandemic, obviously. Um, what have you noticed about public interest in the history of disease and climate during the pandemic 
maybe starting from March, maybe starting from um, even earlier. As an environmental historian with a particular interest in disease, I did begin, Emma, as you know, working in um, the current pandemic into the classroom in January. Uh, and that is something that really works well with biology and global health students uh, who I get to teach at Georgetown, and that's fantastic. Um, and I've just, I guess, been shocked early on by the connections that were drawn with the past in media coverage of COVID-19. And Degamar has heard me complain a lot about this for many months now. But I really felt that the past from very early on was just being used to sensationalize the present in order to draw more readers to various news outlets and to maintain that readership. Really, you know, from January 25th, uh, the U.S. paper of record, the New York Times, was already comparing uh, SARS-CoV-2 to the 1918, which is in fact the 1917-1920 influenza pandemic. Um, at the time, there were very few deaths, and the spread was quite limited. Um, and I just remember being shocked by that. They did so again by February 1st. It upset me so much that I actually went through the archives of the paper and tabulated the number of times that they were drawing these connections. And then in comes the Black Death, and it was just absolutely shocking. I do feel that historians of disease perhaps could have done more to address these problems. I feel like a lot of academics and a lot of historians of disease have certainly um, become present, more present than they normally are given the opportunity that they have been given in the current context to talk about their research. But I don't feel so many or a great number of historians of disease have been holding the media to account. There have been some amazing uh, podcasts and blog posts, for instance, but I would definitely like to have seen more written in the same media outlets that were pushing these absurd linkages with the great uh, pathogenic catastrophes of the past. So what would you say is the role of historians right now than during the pandemic? Is it um, to sort of check the media? Um, is it to prescribe policy? Um, is it simply to provide more nuanced accounts about the past. What should historians like you be doing right now? Certainly, I think historians should be nuancing what they're encountering in the media for the sake of the greater good. Um, I really feel that there's a lot to be said and just even tackling some of the nonsense that has come out uh, and that has become commonplace these days, that, that in itself would take a lot of work carving out a space at the table uh, to get involved in policy would also be wonderful. I definitely think that historical epidemiologists can repurpose their education in order to begin uh, a constructive, meaningful dialogue with disease ecologists, um, with epidemiologists interested in tracing and establishing trends in disease emergence. You know, when you read a paper on emerging disease, often the temporal frame extends back to maybe 1990 or 1980, um, and then it stops there. And more often than not, it's also restricted to parts of the world where uh, data is easily available and in English. I think that uh, if there was more dialogue between disciplines here, historians could really contribute meaningfully 
uh, to these fields, these important fields of study. But this definitely takes an historian far away from their education. We privilege the monograph. We're trained to work in isolation. And I think those are huge problems that we need to deal with, particularly for environmental historians, unless one is an environmental historian uh, with a strong interest in, in cultural environmental history. But um, I do think that uh, historians of disease can really get engaged or really can be engaged in some meaningful scholarship going forward if they think outside the box mm -hmm. and if they think of how they can lend their tool set to scholars in other fields who would love to know what they know. I've experienced already some of this at Georgetown. Again, I've been so fortunate to be uh, mixed in with the colleagues that I am. Uh, but I, I just definitely think that this is a way forward. So, so the problem is that, just sticking specifically to the news media thing, and yeah, you and I have talked about this a lot, but I find your insights to be really fascinating here. Um, the problem is that in news media, first of all, there are inexpert voices making sort of grand predictions and comparisons. And second of all, the kinds of comparisons that they make, comparisons that they make, are between what's happening now and much more serious and uh, just very, very different um, pandemics in the past. And those are comparisons that you really can't make. Um, and you would realize this if you drew on the expertise frankly, of, of people like you, but they don't. Is that an accurate summary? Or? I would say, well, certainly historians have been interviewed in media outlets for months now, but I, I also think that when an historian is being interviewed and their text is going to be incorporated into a news article that uh, everyone needs to be aware that they are not in control of what's going to be published. And the narrative has probably already been constructed before the interview has taken place. And I think a lot of our fear early on about SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 uh, was really fueled by xenophobia in the West. And that is something that upset me um, early on is, you know, Dagmar, we were complaining in person then about this and not over Zoom. And again, not to, not to give the New York Times a difficult time, I should say perhaps that I don't read a lot of North American newspapers, maybe three of them, and that's one of them. And that's the why, one of the reasons why I'm picking on them. But also very early on in late January and early February, the New York Times itself was referring to China virus, Wuhan virus, uh, Chinese Corona virus. And then only weeks later, they are critiquing, rightly so, other people for doing the same thing. Um, xenophobia was very real early on. And I think it really underlaid some of the connections that were um, being drawn. I, I, I don't know, I just would like to have seen more historians engaging with the problems that we were being confronted with, that non-specialists were taking as fact. And I would have liked to have seen, as I stressed to students so often, that people not get their SARS-CoV-2 facts from the media, but go to uh, different governmental websites if not the World Health Organization, then at least the John Hopkins dashboard, and there are so many other dashboards now, and there's a lot of great data out there. It is an infodemic, obviously. Um, but the, the, the problem extends beyond that as well, because um, you know, in, in very famous medical journals, we have physicians who are writing commentaries on the Black Death in the 1917-19 influenza, 
which they continue to refer to as the Spanish flu, which is ridiculous, um, written for these journals and the articles are being digested and these problems are just being perpetuated and perpetuated. They need to be interrupted and they're only gonna be interrupted with more cross-disciplinary work. And this is gonna require not only people who are doing this writing to reach out to historians of disease, but also for historians of disease to get in contact with them too. It goes both ways. We can't just sit back and wait for someone to ask us because we're the authority on whatever particular outbreak we're the authority on. We need to make it known and reach out to them and say, we can lend a hand here. And perhaps if we work together, we will be able to produce something that's a little bit more critical and representative, not only of the present and of the past. You know, the past was misused in so many different ways that not only was the present misrepresented, but I also think that the past was deeply misrepresented. I, I want to get into, there's a communications problem that you've identified, Tim. It's a communications problem that is in part a function of insufficient sort of cross-disciplinarity. What is the consequence of that communications problem? In other words, if they had constructed more accurate narratives in the New York Times, for example, or uh, wherever, would the policy response have been different? Should the policy response have been different? What do you think? Well, of course it should have been different, but <laughs> especially in some parts of the world. Um, it still should be different. There's time to fix things, but everything's going in the wrong direction fast. Part of the problem that you're, you're sort of emphasizing, right, is that this pandemic was compared to, frankly, far worse pandemics in the past, partly to get those clicks, those sweet clicks that, that everybody wants these days, right? And if those comparisons had not been made, and if the narrative had been a little bit more nuanced, the pandemic maybe looks a little bit different too. Would that have provoked a more effective response by not just governments, but also, you know, companies, individuals, etc.? Or, and we've talked about this a little bit, or was this kind of, these kinds of comparisons, which generated a lot of fear, did they help to create a more effective response than you otherwise might have get, gotten with more accurate narratives. Obviously, this is also something that comes up a lot with climate change. For sure. I do think there is something to be said about bad history done purposefully. And I definitely think that by saying that SARS-CoV-2 or making loose linkages between the current pandemic and the Black Death of the mid-14th century or uh, the Justinianic plague, or I even saw the Antonine plague come up once or twice, and the Athenian plague, even people were journalists were getting desperate and digging deep. Um, yeah, Thucydides went viral again. I've seen that a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I definitely think that there's something to be said for bad history done purposefully. Certainly, when we make these connections, as long as the the reader understands these events as being dramatic events that sickened and killed uh, millions of people, then maybe they will be scared into doing what is right uh, and adopting um, the social distancing, for instance, that has done a lot of good in many parts of the world and just simply following the guidelines that have been set instead of ignoring them. Um, so yeah, definitely bad history, bad history done purposefully. I can see a point to that, but I also think it's very clear that in the media, there was no real, that's not, wasn't their thought process by any means. But yeah, on February 1st, for instance, again, not to pick on the New York Times, but also to pick on the New York Times, uh, there were 300 or so uh, confirmed deaths of COVID 
19. Uh, and the comparison was drawn again at that point to the 1917-1918 influenza. Um, and still that comparison doesn't work today by any means. Um, if we could talk about the comparisons in terms of the unknowns and the unknowns in terms of the origins, the morbidity and mortality, but still, if most scholars think that at least 25 million people died in that influenza pandemic, uh, and some are very happy to say 50 million, uh, then how are we supposed to make sense of the 450,000 deaths uh, that we've had so far of SARS-CoV-2, even if, say, we've missed uh, three quarters of the deaths? <laughs> There's just simply no comparison. You know, if we were just to do simple simple math that we shouldn't do, quite frankly, but to say that if uh, influenza was to have occurred, the great influenza was to have occurred today, we would be looking at something at like 2.3 million deaths in the continental US and well over 45 million deaths in South Asia alone, just to uh, give an example. You know, the, the comparison just simply doesn't make any sense. But if it was made, and it wasn't, but if it was made in order to frighten people, to terrify people into doing what they should and to self-quarantine as much as they could, at least, um, because we know, of course, that not everyone can carry out those self-isolation policies to the same degree, that sure, there's something to be said about bad history done on purpose. The way that you have explained this um, makes so much sense. And I think it, ma it makes sense to me, but I think it would make sense to a person who doesn't have a background in thinking historically um, in general. And the kind of research that you do that draws equally from the natural and the social sciences um, or the humanities is so urgently needed to understand topics like the history of disease and climate. But um, is there sometimes a problem of communication of this kind of interdisciplinary research to a more general audience? Absolutely. That is always a problem. Um, that actually comes back to something that we were talking about before and that uh, I had noted that many historians of disease have been interviewed by journalists for various newspaper articles and it's great to be interviewed and great to try to get one's point across while being interviewed but better than that or a next step up is taking the time to write a opinion piece where one has control or at least mm. a little bit more control over the message that's being communicated and I definitely think uh, in communicating um, careful interdisciplinary research uh, to the public is definitely a challenge. Things always have to be simplified, but not to the extent, hopefully, that they become anachronistic or so problematic that they're no longer true to what was actually said in the article. I've, I've experienced this before, um, and I don't really know how to get over it other than if the authors themselves take the time to write opinion pieces for popular media outlets whether a newspaper or the atlantic walrus etc i just think that that's what really has to you can't let always let someone else uh try to do it for us but then again that eats into time time is precious and we don't necessarily always get um 
credit that isn't necessarily as valued uh, within the academy as the scholarly outputs are, of course. Mm-hmm. And that's only if it gets accepted too, or if you know people even respond. I've plenty of times I've been ghosted or yeah, just flat out rejected. Um, once because actually quite recently I proposed uh, something on climate change and conflict, and was told that they had too many climate change articles on a very popular site. <laughs> there was no room for more climate change stuff. Um, and this was before COVID hit. So, you know, it's a it's a lot of effort, but it's also a lot of effort that can very, very easily be wasted, um, unfortunately. And it's not something that <clears throat> really goes into the tenure file. Definitely not something that goes into the tenure file. And actually, even more than that, one reason I think that the effort is sometimes wasted is precisely the message that you're describing is you know, a, a message where you complicate things mm-hmm. is not going to be well received necessarily by a lot of popular media outlets because that's not necessarily a message that gets a lot of clicks, right? If, if someone sees, you know, um, an article that the headline is, you know, you got to nuance your ideas about this uh, or you can't make certain comparisons, you know, people want to read the articles where they're, you know, they get scared, not necessarily the ones that add uh, some subtlety. At least sure. that's, yeah, that's the attitude I think that a lot of editors have. I don't actually think that's true. I think people do want exactly this message. That's been my experience, but I think a lot of editors would uh, believe otherwise. Nuance is not clickable. Um, that's what I think a lot of people be- believe. I don't know if that's true, however. In my experience, it hasn't been once something actually gets published. <laughs> Catastrophe certainly sells and resilience doesn't. Some of the comparisons drawn between historical outbreaks, if I can say, and the current pandemic are just so shocking to the point where they, I, I, I just fail to un- understand really how this stuff is getting out there. But I guess it's partly because of the fact that the critical, more nuanced work isn't getting the traction. So we can find many newspaper articles now comparing the Antonine Plague, about which we know very, very little. There are scholars that don't think that the Antonine pandemic was even a pandemic and that scholars have conflated multiple distinct outbreaks of disease uh, in order to produce, to manufacture a larger outbreak of disease. Um, But there's sort of stuff is just, it's kind of everywhere. And and it's just kind of, it's kind of an all around assault and what is the historian to do other than to write responses, notes to the editor and opinion pieces in order to attempt to set um, the record straight as it were, or to at least point out that there's, um, there, there is some risk in drawing these connections, risk for people's mental health, I would think. Um, I recall you know, being in Toronto during SARS-1, in 2003, there was a lot of scholarship that came out afterwards about media overhyping the outbreak in order to uh, attract and maintain readers. Um, and then the outbreak didn't end up being what the media seemed that they wanted it to be. And yet there were significant mental health complications and about the media reporting. You know, the media reports literally shape epidemiological profiles of pandemics because they shape human behaviors and what people do. Well, we were both in in Toronto for SARS. Um, For those of you who don't remember, Toronto was one of the 
cities worst hit by uh, the SARS outbreak. Um, and yeah, I remember the climate of fear very vividly in the city at the time. And I kind of, you know, you hope you don't live through something like that again, except here we are, sometimes worse. Um, well, a hundred times worse. Yeah, and both of your areas of study have become even more topical in recent months. They were always relevant, but they have become um, more sort of in the public eye. Does your research reveal connections between these topics, between climate change and disease? in the past? I would love to think that it does, but um, I'm not so certain that it actually does. There's increasing interest in this, and that's of course fueled in part by the fact that there's just there's just a never-ending flood of wonderful data coming forth from the paleoclimate sciences. Every couple of weeks there's something new and pivotal that's reshaping what we thought we knew about past climate. And then at the same time, paleogenomics and evolutionary biologists are reshaping our knowledge and paleopathologists, people that work with human skeletons are also reshaping what we know about um, disease landscapes in the past, disease emergences, the evolution of particular pathogens of interest. And it would be wonderful to see these things come together, but it's very difficult to do that. You know, we could write a flashy headline for any media outlet, maybe even an academic journal, volcanic eruption causes black death or volcanic cluster causes Justinianic plague or something like that. But when you try to actually look at it closely and tease out sort of the causal mechanisms on any sort of regional or micro scale, we're just met by an avalanche of unknowns, really. If we're going to attempt to associate uh, past climate change to past disease outbreaks, we need to not only understand uh, the climate change in good detail. We also need to understand, uh, have an idea, a good, very good idea of the identity of the outbreak that we are attempting to talk about, and also its ecology. Um, so one example that's come up in my work a few times, and that's come up in a number of scholars' work and, and in the work of journalists too, um, you know, uh, Monica Green, Mike McCormick, um, and a number of individuals interested in the uh what is now in some circles known as the late antique little ice age well that's another topic definitely and just to quickly interject late antique little ice age period of cooling uh beginning in the 530s ce very hotly debated i guess no pun intended <laughs> how how cold it really was where it was cold which seasons were cold etc i think part of the reason why it's so hotly debated it is just that uh, it's being said to be something that it was never said to be. And I think that is a major issue. You know, the, the original team that put that paper together made a certain number of claims and other people have said that they've made other claims. And they looked and established the late antique Little Ice Age in two particular regions using two different, uh, using proxies from those regions, uh, which one of the lead authors had played a very important role in constructing. They didn't say that this was a Eurasian-wide phenomenon or a European or Mediterranean phenomenon, but it's made out to be all those things. It has been made out to be all those things. We do not have a high-resolution signal for any sort of climate proxy for the Mediterranean region in antiquity. We have very high-resolution data from speleothems, let's say, but they're not fixed into any uh, chronology. 
there so people are saying things that we can't say and i think that's because they haven't spent enough time hanging out and working with reaching out to scholars in the natural sciences in order to get a better grasp of what we know and what we don't know we still don't know much more than we know and that's going to be the case going forward for a while one of the reasons why disease history is so exciting these days is because it is increasingly collaborative and because of the fact that so much data is coming in from so many different different areas you never know what's going to come next and it's exciting and fantastic and ever evolving it also makes it very hard to write monographs about these topics because the target's always moving of course I wouldn't want to publish a book in 2020 to find out in 2021 one of the key uh, science nuggets I based the book on was remodeled, thrown out, or tweaked to any degree. Um, so that's difficult, but at the same time, it keeps the field uh, so exciting. Just the um, what we know about plague has completely uh, been revolutionized over the last uh, 10 years now that we have confident uh, ADNA identifications of Yersinia pestis in graves that are concretely tied to the Black Death. Uh, we've established, not me personally, of course, but teams of paleogenomicists working um, in labs uh, in North America and Europe that um, Yersinia pestis uh, localized somewhere in the region and wasn't repeatedly reintroduced. Scholars have done away with the old idea that it had to be uh, spread around thanks to Radis radis and the rat flea ecto Parasites are now really part of the conversation. Human flea, human louse, uh, pneumonic plague is still there, of course. We're just learning so much more about this stuff, and, and that really keeps it exciting and all the more important to have Google alerts and to be reading along as things change because you don't want to perpetuate outdated science because you also have to be aware of the risk that not every historian is going to uh, dive deep into the natural sciences and that's something that you write about uh, that integrates natural science material in 2006, for instance, could still be drawn on in 2020 by historians, even though the science has moved along so considerably. That There's good examples of that for the 536 Dust event or 536 climate downturn, which again might not be related. But there's been historians at the foreground here that have really been working on uh, this new era in disease history, such as Nuket Barlick and Carmichael and Monica Green, of course. Um, and it, it it's, it's, keeps it all so fresh, and I think the students really like that. Um, it keeps history in the spotlight of the media as well. But the other, the um, maybe the only side effect is that it also keeps the focus on plague. And um, I really think that uh, scholars still today think or portray plague as though it occurs in a vacuum. And that's something that I've really tried to do in my work is focus on other pathogenic diseases that are discernible either in human remains or on human remains via the lesions that they leave, chronic infections. Of course, epidemic diseases will either kill or clear too quickly to impact the skeleton, bone growth or decay, but other diseases such as malaria, tuberculosis, Etc. Uh, there are traces of, 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 of those. So something in my own work, I've been trying to, in an effort, nuance the ongoing research, cutting edge research, by integrating it uh, 
into disease landscapes, if you will, or reconstructing disease landscapes in an attempt to begin to understand how diseases interact in an individual region and individuals. And um, in order to maybe get at the topic of syndemics, uh, something that Emily Mendenhall at Georgetown has really uh, uh, pressed home for me. One of our stars, our Georgetown stars. But just to emphasize again that the narratives are changing and that historians need to be critical of the of the of the perceived knowledge that they adopt when they begin to take on or or get interested in a particular disease, whether it's the origins of smallpox, where and when, or the Black Death or the Justinianic Plague or the Antonine Plague or the Athenian Plague. Why do we think the things that we think that needs to be investigated first before we just start to build on existing uh, narratives? So getting back to the um, connection, the popular connection between the Justinianic plague and the volcanic events, the massive volcanic events that uh, initiate, are said to initiate the late antique Little Ice Age. Um, those have attracted attention since uh, for a long time, um, but a journalist in the late 90s did a, uh, did a Channel 4 documentary on um, a massive explosion in uh, Krakatoa uh, that could be dated somehow to 535 uh, and uh, contributed to the uh, expansion of plague from uh, East Africa uh, reservoir that then uh, expanded to be the Justinianic plague uh, and killed tens of millions, if not 100 million people. Um, that narrative, as popular and poorly founded as it was at the time, has certainly spurred a lot of interest in this, and there are no shortage of scholars these days um, looking to establish climate linkages between major outbreaks of disease in the past and, um, and the major climate events. But, you know, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. These things could have existed in complete isolation from one another and had no uh, effect on each other whatsoever. Um, we've seen in SARS-CoV-2, there is, sure, we're in a period of dramatic climate change, but it's not like we're gonna say that the outbreak started with a volcanic eruption. Um, though, uh, I think any journal or newspaper editor would potentially love that headline. Um, but the linkages are problematic for so many reasons. We, we have a pretty solid idea that the 536 event was Northern North American, um, and that the 540 event was uh, Central American, El Salvador likely, almost certainly. Um, and we have a pretty good idea of the initial spread of the Justinianic plague, but we don't exactly know uh, the proximate origin of the Justinianic plague or where, from where it flowed over, if you will, um, and precisely in what year it flowed over. The paleogenomics point all the way over into Central Asia, but um, that doesn't mean that the outbreak started there. It could have started from another reservoir or closer to the Mediterranean region. Um, we don't know uh, the species that was housing, if you will, Yersinia pestis at the time. We don't know how that species interacted with the environment around it. To, if I could, I could sum it up by simply saying that we need an understanding of climate in the sixth century that we don't have, and we need an understanding of plague ecology in the sixth century that we don't have in order to make those linkages.
right? We don't even quite frankly know if we should be putting as much emphasis on Procopius's account that it begins in the Northeastern Nile Delta. That's just something that's come out of matter of fact readings that are centuries old and we've just kind of run with them. Why is it that we are putting so much faith into that? That's that's just just to clarify for our listeners. That's a that's an account of the outbreak of the Justinianic plague, this huge uh, pandemic, um, probably huge pandemic uh, uh, in the sixth century, that kind of roughly coincides with the late antique Little Ice Age. Yes, certainly. So the uh, outbreak emerges into the historical record in 541, and because it takes place um, a few years after the five. 36 Dust Veil event, which might not be related whatsoever to the um, Northern Hemisphere climate event of 536, because that event, that volcanic eruption was uh, high latitude um, and didn't have an impact uh, south of the equator. So because these events happen so in close, such close proximity, people want to draw linkages between them. But we don't have the data, we don't have the understanding of plague ecology that we need uh, in order to tease out those linkages. And we don't even, if we are going to say, for instance, that uh, Yersinia pestis um, spilled over uh, from a reservoir in East Africa or Northeast Africa or Southern Arabia um, in the uh, 530s following the 536 event, we don't even have good high resolution uh, paleoclimate data that's in a fixed chronology for that part of the world to know how the 536 event was impacting temperature at that period of time. And even, you know, in the Alps, we only know about summer temperature and people always leave that out. They speak of the late antique little ice ages as though it's some sort of year round deep freeze. But if you look at the speleothem data that we ha do have, for the sixth century, it suggests warmer winters at the same time, so less seasonality. And we're also always obsessed with something negative, right? So why must we think of 536 and 540 as spawning a massive outbreak of disease? It may have, it may not have. Again, we don't have the data to really uh, tease out any of the causal linkages. Um, but at the same time, dramatic cooling in the in the growing seasons and drying, as we can see in the old world drought atlas, uh, in continental Europe at least, would have lessened, I think, and I've tried to say this in my work, um, the burden of malaria and other arthropod-borne diseases, or at least mosquito-borne diseases, for instance. So we don't always need to be thinking about, you know, dramatic negative repercussions. Uh, a significant cooling event could, uh, there could definitely be a silver lining or a nice upshot from that. So you know this this is kind of like a, a a problem that comes up a lot, right? I guess in in uh, in climate history and, and and more broadly actually in any kind of discussion of climate change because you've got often um, trends that seem to be roughly overlapping and you know so for for example trend in climate right and then um, you know an outbreak of disease and it's very very tempting if they happen around the same time to kind of mash them together and say well the first, the climate causes the other. But when you really go down and you look at the local level and you do kind of this fine-grained analysis, or you, you know, go back and look at the data and see what you actually have, it becomes much, much more difficult to, to make those kinds of connections. And whether, you know, that's true whether you talk about the sixth century and the late antique Little Ice Age, or when you talk about much more recent periods um, of climate change and conflict, for example, and, you know, the Syrian civil war being an excellent example of that all these connections between climate change and human affairs turn out at the 
local level, high resolution level, to be very, very difficult to make. But I do wonder if um, history tells us anything about how pandemics end, because of course that's what we all care about right now. Is there anything in common between the ways that pandemics end or is each one different? And you know, of course what I'm asking here is, does history tell us anything about how this pandemic might end? Well, certainly historians and everyone should be saying what epidemiologists say, if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. It's, uh, you know, this is something that I've said in my own opinion piece in the newspaper that um, drawing these comparisons is pretty risky um, because we can't really know what's going to happen going forward. We can hardly predict the political response in the U.S. Uh, to the current pandemic. Um, how pandemics end, I wouldn't be surprised if this, I think we've all We've gotten increasingly we're adjusting to the fact that this isn't really a pandemic anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just a new endemic disease um, and adjusting to the fact that it's not really going to go anywhere. You know, um, if one of the 135 or so vaccines comes forth and everyone starts vaccinating, it's going to take a long time to ensure that there's no pocket left for the pathogen to circulate and to reemerge. But um, so I guess we're all just going to have to see how this Walls out. There'll be multiple waves, of course, as there always is. There's no doubt about that. History teaches that. So you're uh, you're looking forward to uh, to an, an an interesting year to come, at least. Yeah, an interesting year to come. Very interesting, for sure. Good times. <laughs> I'm I'm currently writing an article or a short piece for a journal with two paleoclimatologists on climate disease linkages over the last uh, 2,500 years in the Mediterranean region. Um, and you know, it's just so hard to say anything, but everyone wants us to say something. And even linking the current experience to climate is difficult. Dagmar, how would you go about doing that? You read and write climate every day. So if we were to say that uh, sequence data says that the spillover happens sometime in mid-November, late November, and then the market in Wuhan isn't almost certainly the origins of the pandemic, but sort of an amplifying place, um, because the first case isn't uh, linked to the market, and several of the first 47 or so reported cases weren't linked to the market. In any case, some of the recent work I was reading um, clearly suggested that particular market was a place of amplification. You know, how would we even go about linking this? If you don't know what the ultimate host is, let alone the intermediate host for certain, and you don't know how those hosts interact with climate or how climate affects the vegetation or plant, uh, plant life that those animals depend on or the environments that they're rooted in, how are we supposed to make these connections? It's very hard, right? I mean, I think there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can connect climate change to different aspects of human experience and you know, on the environment in which people live. And one way of doing that is to look at causation. Like, you know, is there a causal connection between climate change and an outbreak? Of course, that's extremely difficult to do because you're looking, when you think about climate change at variability on many different spatial temporal scales, and you don't necessarily know which scale is appropriate. But um, more broadly, I think you could connect um, climate change to the outbreak uh, in a number of different ways, for example, by looking at how emissions are declining 
in different places as a result of, of human responses to this, or by looking at the role of air pollution, right, in making different populations more susceptible and how air pollution is concentrated often in areas where people, you know, who are poor, often people of color um, have been concentrated by unjust policy. Um, that's one way of doing it and how air pollution can be also res responsive to climatic trends and a contributor to climatic trends. There's, there's all that kind of stuff that you can work on. So vulnerability is one way um, looking at responses. It's even been said that the cities in northern, in the northern Italian peninsula that were worst affected have uh, um, no small amount of air pollution. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and then you can think about how this is all kind of part and parcel of the Anthropocene, right? And so climate change is one thing, but also the kind of human encroachment on uh, I don't know, I guess you can say wild space, you know, the ways in which people are making use of these wet markets, why they are necessary, um, how they are you know, kind of inviting, uh, uh, I guess, disease outbreaks. Um, this has been done by a number of different people to kind of connect it all to kind of one big problem, right? Um, so there's a bunch of different ways to do it. But I think often when people are asking this question about the connection between climate change and and disease, they are thinking about causation as one cause the other. Specifically, does climate change cause the other? And that's hard to do. 100%. That is almost only what people are thinking about. They're almost only thinking about the, the uh, a spillover event and the geographical origins and then dissemination and how climate facilitated those things. Maybe it didn't facilitate it. Maybe it curbed those things. Right? You know, I think it's interesting. I pointed out in one piece that the late antique Little Ice Age, or the the climate cooling, the summer temperature cooling um, that we can see in uh, continental Europe um, is pushed along by a number of very large volcanic events in 574 and 626, for instance. And how do those uh, overlap with what we know about recurrences or reamplifications of plague, which have become rooted by that point, some point in the Mediterranean, somewhere in the Mediterranean region or Europe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, these are these are good points. I, I think um, I see that even more when scholars, journalists write about the past, right? Then even even more than when they write about the present, because it's true. And we've talked about this a million times and worked on projects that try and confront this. But it's always kind of about disaster, right? And it's it's very very often about those kind of what I would consider to be simple, but also almost impossible to prove causal connections. Those disaster narratives, monographs, sell millions and millions of copies. A popular, easy to digest resilience narrative needs to be produced uh, that addresses the very same events that have made it into the disaster book, the so-called Maya collapse or Greenland collapse. All of those, we need very popular non-academic works on those to start to fight back against those narratives and works that question how we even got to those disaster narratives in the first place. With the Justinianic plague, you know, there's a lot of interest in the Justinianic plague because of the fact that it's been said for so long to have killed so many millions and millions of people. But then we must ask ourselves how we got to those numbers in the first place. Um, and these, it's just a, a time-worn narrative that's been perpetuated um, for not decades, but for centuries going back literally centuries, the same narrative we are seeing pushed out uh, today for the Justinianic plague, 
And I think we really need to question even the idea that some of these events, events are what we think they are. I alluded to that earlier when I was talking about the Antonine Plague. Um, I have something in the works on that in the Justinianic Plague paper isn't really my own, but I, I worked on a team with a team of scholars doing that Lee, Mordecai, and Merle Eisenberg in particular. Uh, but that was a multidisciplinary effort as well that brought in pollinology and treated numismatic, um, epigraphic, and uh, papyri evidence uh, critically in, in a way that forces us to um, question the big grand narratives that we are so happy to absorb and to keep going. Um, it doesn't argue like so many people think it does for some reason, a minimalist perspective, um, certainly not. It's simply showing that the foundations of the opposite, uh, the maximalist perspective are simply wanting. They, they need some serious fine tuning if we're going to keep running with them. This is work you've done or that you've uh, worked on with a group um, that challenges uh, some of the established wisdom about the Justinianic plague as this kind of massive pandemic, or maybe even more accurately, you're just going through some of the, the sources that have been used to make that claim and, and saying that it's, you know, they're, uh, they're not as definitive as, as people have assumed. They, 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 they don't necessarily say what people have assumed. And I think this is, this is very, very common in history when you go back and actually figure out where claims come from right and uh you know even just looking look through any history book <laughs> usually you'll find claims that are made that are based on secondary literature maybe that is based on other secondary literature and you know that goes back sometimes very far into the past and finally when you find the root of the claim turns out to be pretty flimsy um absolutely in in, in one paper a couple years ago i investigated this supposed massive uh, Pan-Eurasian outbreak of cattle plague that happens in 376 that one can read about in um, most papers on the Rinderpest virus and papers on the evolution of Morbilla viruses in uh, campaign literature about the eradication of the Rinderpest virus. Supposedly this massive Pan-Eurasian uh, outbreak of cattle disease, uh, one of the um, first uh, that could be concretely, supposedly said to be Rinderpest. And I think I've shown that it is a early modern or Renaissance artifact. Um, certainly when you go back to the original sources, it's not there at all, let alone how it's described in 20th and 21st century science papers. So I'm recently you uh, were in investigating potential linkages between plague, climate, and food shortage in uh, Scotland in the 1640s, uh, a period in Scottish history which really hasn't been studied all that much. And how easy did you find this? Simple task, draw a few lines, call it a day? Yeah, super simple. Um, coming soon to a newspaper near you. Um, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It was, I mean, the fact that archives are closed, um, first of all, made this project really, really tricky. But, but yeah, I mean, triangulating between so many ecological, social, economic variables, plus the epidemiology and the plague ecology um, was enormously complicated. And I'm now trying to figure out what to do with the research that I did for this 
paper, but it does require, um, as we've mentioned a couple of times during this conversation, expertise in um, you know, areas that I am not familiar with now and probably don't really have the time to become familiar with. So I think your point about collaboration um, is also really significant here, that to be able to chat with others who have an expertise in plague ecology, yeah, it, it, it would be really, really tricky to do a project like this on my own and make it um, a finished piece of scholarship. It's great to hear you say that. And I certainly think that is something that um, graduate students and environmental historians in training need to be comfortable saying, that they don't need to master everything. The job, I think, should be to become conversant and be able to become aware of what questions need to be asked to know the limits of the data in other disciplines and what scholars to reach out to in order to collaborate with. We can't keep going alone. This is just going to cause problems, perpetuate old mistakes and old narratives. Historians not only need to be critical of the perceived wisdom uh, in history textbooks and history articles, but they also need to be uh, comfortable being interdisciplinary but working in an interdisciplinary team. I think that's the only way forward and certainly it's, it's one way to really um, and stamp out uh, environmental determinism in simplistic correlation equals causation narratives. So it's great that um, you're saying that. Yeah, the thesis of that paper was like, it's complicated. We're not sure. That's the thesis of everything I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, lastly, you're not only a great scholar, and I admire you for that, but I especially admire you, actually, because you are a devoted parent. Um, and I know that we have been in similar situations over the last few months. I can actually hear my kids shrieking in the background uh, right now. And I'm currently in a closet with the kids perilously close, <laughs> just outside the closet. Um, so I'm wondering, is, is there anything you wish more professors or you know, university administrators would know about the experience of, of teaching and researching uh, with children in the era of COVID? Yeah, well, you know, it hasn't been easy. I stressed in an in a email message to Emma and yourself yesterday that I am not myself these days. I am perhaps one-fifth of the person I normally am. And uh, that is owing to a number of different things, but no small part because essentially every day is Saturday at my house. My boy, who's the center of my life, um, is at a stage in school where he's learning to read. That consumes about an hour and a half of every day. I've never, I didn't go to university to learn how to teach people how to read. It's not easy, I will tell you that. Um, we are doing multiplication tables. We are also working on uh, two languages, in fact. It's, you know, parents often say, at least the parents that I, I, I know that, the real Saturday is Monday. And that's because of the fact that your kids go back to school on Monday and you're able to, you know, work if you need to work. Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Um, but I admire you for it, Tim. What's worse? Really, I was Zoom bombed. Dagmar and Emma, you both saw it. Uh, Dagmar managed to get a screenshot. <laughs> uh, but I think even worse than that was when I was doing an introduction uh, for another class, uh, and then I was nerf attacked by my son. And that was being recorded for students that didn't yet know me and colleagues uh, that I was just getting to know. And all of a sudden I was being pelted with Nerf arrows from behind as my son 
cackled in the background. So that that's was great. Nice. I'm sorry, Tim, but that's one of the best. <laughs> that's one of the best um, stories about uh, parenting and and teaching that I've that I've heard. Also, I saw. I think I saw the screenshot of that. Did I? I think so. Maybe you sent it to me. No, I sent you the screenshot of you being zoom bombed, which was pretty oh. grim, actually, on <laughs> on many different levels, um, but not of you being pelted by by Nerf projectiles. Which you can is, make a GIF if you like, because there's a live recording. I would I would have loved to do that if I had if I had time, Tim. If I uh, if I had any sure. time at all. I'm sure you have more time than you've ever had. Uh, oh yeah, tons of time. That's that's what people tell me sometimes who don't have kids. Like, oh yeah, this is such a great opportunity to research now. It's a writing retreat. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. Yeah, incorrect. Turns out to be incorrect. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's so particular to the. I'm sure my experience is completely different than your experience. I'm not changing any diapers. It's a. Uh, in my case, <laughs> in some respects, my my experience is similar because my kids go to bed around eight thirty. And then I have maybe two hours to work, you know, in theory. And then, um, then I go to bed and my son, who's one year old, wakes up every hour right now, every one to two hours. And then permanently around four, maybe 5 a.m., which is when I take over, uh, I give my partner some hours to sleep. My daughter wakes up. I'm with them until nine. Then I start trying to work again on most days, kind of on and off with many, many, many interruptions. Um, when my son naps, I have to rock him sometimes for about an hour until he finally falls asleep. He's a terrible sleeper. And then usually I'm, you know, just switch to full-time childcare at three, sometimes five, just completely give up. And then, you know, again, that goes on until 8.30. So, you know, basically, the work schedule is nothing and you know it's interrupted a whole bunch of times it's just and you've got all these projects right you've got all these things you have to do and responsibilities that you have in collaborative projects or collaborative projects not all of your yeah. collaborators are in the same position so that also provides additional stresses if i would oh yeah